0: Welcome to J-Life with Daniel. I'm your host, Rabbi Daniel Levine. Okay, well, for this episode, I felt that it would be important to talk about the recent Roe v. Wade leaked Supreme Court decision, both from a Jewish traditional point of view and also from what I'm going to call a meta-Jewish view. Before we get into the actual podcast, I wanted to highlight a couple things and just delineate them at the outset. One, that any conversation about abortion, regardless of whether one is pro-life or pro-choice, comes with some sort of array of controversy, especially if one has a position that doesn't fit on either extreme. It's funny. I actually reached out to a whole series of people asking if they wanted to be guests on the podcast, and almost everybody reacted with some sense of discomfort. What if I say something wrong, one person said? I don't want to accidentally say something stupid and get people mad at me, another person said. Needless to say, there's a huge danger in our society if specifically the people that have nuanced views, specifically the people that on any issue feel uncomfortable expressing their own opinion, feel too uncomfortable talking about it. Because then all we're left with in the public sphere, both on this particular issue, but also on a whole array of other social issues political, and even religious issues, we're only going to be left with the extremes. And so in some way, this introduction is sort of an encouragement and I think also a social imperative for people on a whole host of issues that don't fit into either of the extremes, people that are able to see the complexity and nuance for a whole host of situations, feeling comfortable bringing that nuance into the public sphere. Because we really do have a problem in society right now where it's the most extreme, the most vocal, the most active 15 to 20 percent on each political extreme of any issue that are dominating the conversation. And as Pew studies show, Americans increasingly on a whole host of issues are free to express their opinion. Needless to say, this is the opposite of what we're trying to accomplish as a society. The entire goal, both, I would argue, of traditional Jewish Talmudic discussion, and also the entire project of liberalism that we're trying to accomplish in both the United States and the wider Western world, is this idea that if we allow the free flowing of ideas, we allow public conversation, and most importantly, we allow disagreement, the best ideas will filter themselves to the top in some survival of the fittest of ideas. But on the other hand, if everybody's too afraid to express ideas, if we're too afraid to express opinions, if we're too afraid to disagree with people and express that disagreement in public for fear of retribution, for fear that it'll hurt us socially, for fear that it'll hurt us professionally, then all we're going to be left with is the loudest voices that are sure that they're correct on any issue. When I say sure they're correct, I obviously mean that facetiously, because oftentimes it's the 10 to 15 percent on either extreme that are 100% confident in their opinion. They need no convincing. The other side won't do anything for them in a discussion. But on any issue, perhaps the political issue I deal the most with is one around Israel Palestine, Israeli politics. And there also, there's a whole host of about 70 to 80 percent of people in the middle that would not say unequivocally, I am 100% on Israel's side. I am not 100% on. The Palestinian side, let's talk about the issue. And if we're too afraid to have these tough conversations, if we're too afraid to entertain ideas, even if they make us feel uncomfortable on a whole host of issues, we're really getting to a point where it's going to be detrimental, not just for our local Jewish community, but for society as a whole. One or two more more pre-comments about this idea of abortion Regardless of what our opinion on abortion is, and as you'll see in a second, my personal opinion, ironically, is that it is a personal question, a personal answer. And so I would never tell anybody what to think about this issue, but I wanted to throw out some ideas in terms of food for thought. There's a very famous and fascinating line in the Talmud that suggests that if a person wanted to become a part of the Sanhedrin, the ancient Jerusalem-based Supreme Court, They would have to find, in the words of the Talmud, 49 ways to matir a sharetz. They would have to find 49 ways to make a sharetz, a type of animal that the Torah unequivocally says is not kosher, kosher. What this means is that in order to get elected to the Jewish Supreme Court in ancient Israel, a judge would have to basically be able to come up with 49 ways that pork or a cheeseburger is kosher. Now, this doesn't mean that one wants judges to engage in crazy, backwards, legal opinions in terms of being able to say that up is down and right is left. But what this means is that in order to get elected to the highest court in the ancient Jewish community, it means that we expect the judges that get elected to be able to see issues from both sides, even if you will never be able to convince a judge on the Sanhedrin, that a cheeseburger is kosher, that judge has to at least understand where the pro-cheeseburger camp, so to speak, is coming from. And if that judge can't come up with 49 ways, not 49 straw men or 49 ways to diminish the other side, but 49 ways to actually figure out why is this other side correct, then they don't get to get elected to the Supreme Court. And we've lost this element of being able to understand where the other side is coming from. This is what Talmudic Jewish tradition is based around. The famous study partners of Hillel and Shammai. It said that when they asked God who was right, Hillel and Shammai were arguing about a whole host of issues. God said, Eluve elu divrei rokim chayim. Both these, the words of Hillel, and both these, the words of Shammai, are correct." So then the Talmud says, "Okay, great. Well." If one side is correct and the other side is correct, how do we know how to rule, right? At the end of the day, you have to have Shabbat dinner. You have to know what food is kosher. You have to know what liturgy to pray. You have to know how to act as an individual in a community. The Talmud says, well, we go with Hillel. Why do we go with Hillel? Well, the Talmud says that Hillel was always careful to quote Shammai's view first, meaning that every time Hillel had an opinion, he was sure to express to the wider public that he understood where his opponent was coming from and not just understood in order to knock it down, but he deeply engaged with the other side. Again, not as a straw man, not saying, oh, the other side are a bunch of idiots, they're a bunch of fundamentalists, they're a bunch of blah, 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 but actually understand where the other side is coming from. That's why we specifically go with Hillel here. That's why a judge on the Jewish Supreme Court has to have 49 ways to The last thing that I want to say by way of introduction before we get to some more traditional Jewish source learning is that abortion is a tough philosophic issue. There's no other way to say it. And I know that even that statement is a little bit controversial, but there's no way around the fact that this is a tough and perplexing philosophic and metaphysical issue. This is not an issue that science can tell us much about. I think that the camp, this is usually the pro life camp that says this, but the idea that science says, science does not say anything about the ethics of a fetus, about the ethics of abortion. Science can tell us facts, science can tell us the is. But as David Hume, the moral philosopher, taught generations ago, you can never derive an ought from an is. I can know every single fact about a fetus. I can know exactly when the heartbeat starts. I can know exactly when that fetus would be viable outside the womb. I can know anything in terms of the factual, the scientific world, and I can never derive an ought from there, right? So any attempt to reduce this discussion to science says, something that you see increasingly on the right, I think is arguing... Trying to think how to phrase this. I don't think that it is a great argument. I also think that it's a little bit of a tricky argument because I don't actually think that the people arguing that the science says actually cares much about science. I think it's much more a religious issue and they're using science as a facade to express their opinion. Now, given that I believe that abortion is an extremely tough philosophic decision, That actually directly leads me to personally, again, personally, we'll get into Judaism in a second, be pro choice. Now, this is not a paradox, meaning, given that I believe this is such a tough moral and philosophic issue, I want every single person to be able to make that choice with input, obviously, from whoever that individual who's seeking an abortion feels that they want input from. If they want input from, a family member, if they want input from a community, if they want input from a rabbi, I am more than happy to help walk them through and talk them through the situations and the moral complexities. But given that it is so morally and philosophically complex, the only reasonable option, in my opinion, is to be pro-choice because any other option is forcing down a top-down opinion on the rest of society. Meaning I don't want a top-down system, certainly not the government, to be butting in on any issue that I believe to be morally complex. I want the government to protect issues that I don't think are morally complex. I don't think that there's anyone in America that would say that murder for no reason is morally complex. Therefore, I want the government to say, okay, we are not allowed to murder. I'm very happy the government does not allow that and publicly polices that issue. In terms of issues that are more complex, I want the government out of it. And one of the ironies here, just sort of going on a tangent for a second, is you oftentimes see the inconsistency in political parties here because groups in America that tend to be more libertarian on some issues completely flip to then want big government on other issues. So it's simply difficult for me to understand how the political parties almost flip. They both flip about 180 here, where the political side that's usually in favor of big government is now saying, get the government out. And on the flip side, the side that's usually in favor of small government now wants the government in, right? This is obviously even more complicated in the wake of the entirety of the government vis-a-vis vaccines and whether or not there should be a vaccine mandate, where again, you have major swaths of the country that said, why should the government be able to force me to have a vaccine? And now they basically want the government to force or to disallow protection for somebody getting abortion, right? Obviously, if we had all day, and this was more of a political podcast, we can tease out. I do know that there is a difference between forcing something into somebody in terms of a vaccine and a fetus, which note with the government is hopefully not forcing into anybody. But again, there is something to be pointed out here for the way in which this specific issue forces a lot of inconsistencies, I think, in terms of meta-categories of the way that a lot of people think about the country. Taking about three steps back now, I wanted to talk about some of the Jewish sources here. Again, not necessarily as indicative of my view or indicative of what I believe the correct view should be, Certainly not the view that I think any government should adopt. But I wanted you to see the range of Jewish views, because as we'll see in a second, uh, just like on a whole host of issues, the Jewish view on abortion is nuanced and complex. We do not think, as a Jewish tradition, that this is a simple issue. And we think that anybody engaged in traditional and deep Jewish learning will see the array of sources and they'll see that this is an issue that our rabbis thousands of years ago in the Mishnah, in the Talmud, also struggled with. So the first and perhaps the most famous source in the actual Torah in terms of abortion is this case study that happens in the middle of Exodus during a whole series of damages, right? The Torah, we've just received the Torah, right? This is sort of in the narrative of the Torah, right? We're we're at Mount Sinai right? We've already received the 10 commandments. The golden calf is already behind us. And all of a sudden the Torah begins to delineate a whole host of rules and laws of interpersonal relationships. One of the things that the Torah says is if you strike a person and they die, you shall surely die, right? So the Torah establishes that there is the death penalty for murder, right? We can unpack that on a future podcast, but from biblical legal system, right? If I go out and I kill somebody, I am liable for the death penalty. Then the Torah goes on to say, well, what happens if two men are fighting, or I guess two people are fighting, right? One could imagine this scenario. And one of them goes in for the punch and accidentally misses the person they were trying to punch and accidentally hits a pregnant woman. And in the striking the pregnant woman, he kills the fetus, right? The woman is fine at the end of the day, but he kills the fetus what happens there? The Torah says you have to pay. Now, this case right here immediately leads a whole host of Jewish thinkers to suggest, okay, let's connect the dots here. If Judaism is pro the death penalty for murder, but the penalty for killing a fetus is just a monetary payment, obviously Judaism does not consider the killing of a fetus to be murder this has been encoded as one of the major Jewish positions. It's not the only Jewish position because there is a contemporary Jewish position, a minority one, that does suggest that at a certain point killing a fetus is murder. But this first position, this idea of a fetus not being murder, is the mainstream Jewish position. But that begs the question, okay, we're still in the Torah here, right? We haven't even made it to the mission and the Talmud yet in terms of the Torah's approach here, it seems that the Torah is somewhere in between the philosophic position of the pro-life slash anti-abortion camp and the pro-choice camp, meaning the Torah certainly would not say that abortion is murder. The Torah also is seemingly saying that abortion or the killing of a fetus is doing some sort of wrong because there has to be a financial payment, right? If a Fetus was just part of the body, or fetus was something else. Then, from some perspective, from some legal, biblical legal perspective, again, I don't want to be misquoted and say, oh, who cares? But from the way that Jewish law works, why would one care to have to have that monetary payment if at the end of the day the mother was fine? So, again, this stream of Jewish thought ends up encoding a fetus as, or the murder of a fetus as a type of damages. Right, similar to if I break somebody's arm, that is under a Jewish category known in halacha as chavala, right? Damages, and there's a whole host of different precepts that apply to this category. I wanted to give a couple more cases from from the Mishnah here, just to again see how our tradition wrestles and deals with this idea before giving some final thoughts on just the Jewish traditional approach to abortion. There's a famous idea in Judaism that the woman's life always takes precedence over the fetus, right? And this, again, is where Judaism departs from a traditional pro-life view. Because, again, if Judaism believed that life begins at conception, there's a well-known Jewish idea that you do not privilege one life over another, But Judaism teaches, the Talmud teaches that you do privilege the mother's life over the fetus, right? For people who want the source, there's a Mishnah in Tractate Ohalot 7.6, which says if a woman is having trouble giving birth, right? So now you imagine, right, nine months and a woman is on the birthing stool having trouble giving birth, what do they do? They cut up the fetus inside her and take it out limb after limb. In other words, they have a late term abortion because her life comes before its life. But the Mishnah says, if most of the head of the baby has come out, then they can't touch the baby because we don't push off one life for another. This is an astounding position because what this is inherently saying is that until the majority of the head of the baby is out, a fetus is never considered a full-fledged human being even to 30 seconds before birth. This is a position that taking a step back, and of course, this is not the only Jewish position, but if you take this Mishnah at face value, this is a more liberal position on abortion than perhaps any state would ever adopt, meaning until the moment that the majority of the head is out, right? That means if less than half the head is out, right, you can have an abortion in order to save the mother, But this, again, this is one of many, many sources in Jewish tradition that suggests that a fetus is not considered a full-fledged human being. No, this doesn't say that a fetus is worthless, right? Because this isn't saying for any reason you can have an abortion nine months into it as the baby's being born. But again, in terms of thinking about this, in terms of categories, right, in America, The dominant pro life camp is motivated by a very simplistic metaphysical idea. In other words, life begins at conception, right? The presumable pro choice position is based off of another idea, which is life does not begin at conception. Judaism clearly seems to side with the idea that life does not begin at conception with the caveat that, sorry, that life does not begin at conception with the caveat that post conception something of value happens. Now, in terms of that, the Talmud has another statement that says in the first 40 days post-conception, a fetus is like maya ba'alma is the Aramaic phrase that the Talmud uses. It's like water. Now, again, this leads a whole host of Jewish thinkers to say, okay, that means before 40 days, a fetus is completely valueless, right? Perhaps after 40 days, We can start to entertain ideas of, okay, a fetus is somewhere in between the chair that I'm sitting on and a full-fledged human being. But before 40 days, it would seem from the simplistic understanding of the Talmud that that fetus is really just considered like water. And there's a whole host of halachic and legal ramifications in terms of halachic literature. You know, for those who are interested, there is a whole discussion on what happens if there's a miscarriage and, you know, the laws there of impurity and burial and all of those things. Pre 40 days, if something happens, it is like there was never a fetus there. So again, just sort of food for thought of complicating these categories. Because oftentimes, and, you know, I'm taking a little tangent away from the Jewish traditional material here, like any good piece of Talmud does, you know, going on a whole wild array of tangents. In America, we've gotten so convinced to thinking of, the abortion issue as a religion versus non-religious issue, right? Everybody knows the pro-life camp is motivated by deep-rooted, mostly evangelical religious suppositions. And everybody knows that the pro-choice or pro-abortion, however we wanna call it, camp is motivated by ideas of liberalism of personal autonomy and personal freedom. Just like most things in life and society, the Jewish position, is very helpful at eradicating binaries in the world because Judaism is a deeply, at least religious Judaism is a deeply religious and legal tradition, right? We have more legal religious texts than perhaps any other religion in the history of the world. And this issue is not a binary in terms of Jewish literature. Jewish literature understands that this is a very complicated topic. And so again, Jewish tradition does not attempt to sugarcoat this issue. But we also understand that this is not something that could easily be solved with a legislative pen, right? This is a real issue that affects real lives. And actually jumping a little bit ahead, and then I'll go back to the Talmud for one more second. In terms of contemporary in the halachic community, so mostly in the wider Orthodox world, anytime a case arises where somebody is seeking out an abortion, the rabbis, the post-game, the halachic legalists are always deciding it on a case-by-case basis. And there's always a conversation to be had. So unlike in the more fundamentalist Christian community, where one could envision religious clergy and religious leaders basically protesting on the side, saying, we are anti-abortion, even the fundamentalist Jewish minds in the Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox community when confronted with a question on abortion, they will sit down with the mother and they will have a long and honest conversation, taking into account a whole variety of factors. Given that, and I'll say this and then I'll go back to the Talmud for one last minute, given that the dominant Jewish position is that abortion is not murder, but is a type of damages. That leads contemporary postgame. And when I say contemporary, really, I mean the last two to 300 years, because in the wide bird's eye span of Jewish history, the last 200 years is contemporary. There have been postgame, there have been Jewish legal scholars that allow damage in a whole host of opportunities. Again, think about this from a pure moral categorical construct. There are a lot more cases where it's acceptable morally for me to break somebody's arm than it is for me to murder somebody. And this is exactly how modern Jewish legalists in the Orthodox world or in the halachic traditional world approach abortion, meaning all things equal, right? If somebody comes and says, I'm looking to get an abortion and the rabbi, the Orthodox rabbi says, well, why do you need one? And And the woman says, well, no good reason. I just, you know, wanted to stop by the clinic today. Right. This is a cartoonish scenario. I know. But the rabbi would say, well, no, all things equal. You know, we give value to a fetus. You can't do this. But the second that there's some other issue, as there almost always is, the second that this is a result of some sort of trauma. Right. Of course, in cases of rape and incest, but even other cases of trauma of, say, a child born or conceived out of wedlock. Right. Right if there's some sort of emotional trauma, let's say this is going to be deeply emotional or psychologically traumatizing, let's say there's economic trauma, all of a sudden the door is now open to a conversation. And both in terms of the Orthodox community in America, and also in terms of Israeli law, all of these things are taken into account. And there's been a lot of famous responsa that have been written by rabbis in the last 150 years Basically saying that there are a whole host of acceptable reasons to get an abortion. Just a couple of, of famous cases: a baby that was, or a fetus that was diagnosed to have Tay Sachs in the womb. Right? I don't know a ton about the actual condition, but presumably that meant that the baby was going to die very soon after it was born. Right? The rabbi said, "Okay, yes, you can get an abortion because that will save psychological trauma later." Right. Other cases, especially in Israel, of children conceived out of wedlock, right, is a good reason to abortion, given that it will be sufficiently embarrassing and psychologically traumatizing to the mother and the family. Now, I don't want to paint a completely rosy picture here because I want to say two important things. One, there are Jewish positions that are much stricter on abortion. But this is the whole point, again, in terms of encapsulating the sort of meta issue here. The entire point is that even among Jewish tradition, we have a whole array and variety of opinions to the point where any attempt to legislate top down here makes no sense because it's such a complex issue, regardless of what your starting point is. If you're starting from the point of, I want to follow the Jewish traditional view. If you're following the point of, I don't care what anybody but me thinks about this issue, right, it is complicated and therefore it should be left to the person who's making the decision and whatever wisdom on the outside, whether that be religious wisdom or secular wisdom or philosophic wisdom, they want to accompany them in that choice. The other thing that I'll say is that given that the Jewish position is somewhere between pro-life and pro-choice, right? I think it has something to challenge everybody, which again, even though if somebody put, a metaphorical gun to my head and said, are you pro-life or pro-choice? I would say I'm pro-choice. I think for anybody who would answer that question in any direction, the Jewish position is something to consider because it's always helpful to have ideas and opinions that are more nuanced, that challenge your own moral binaries of the world. There's a couple other um, Talmudic cases, but I'm, I'm now thinking that I'm going to skip them. But 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 I do want to... Leave at least this one section of the podcast, and then there's one final thing that I want to say with some more food for thought, which is we went over probably about two percent of the total discussion of fetuses and abortion in just the Mishnah and Talmud. That's not to mention the hundreds of thousands of pages of commentary that have been written on those pages of Talmud from the medieval and modern period. Again. This is not a simple issue in terms of Jewish tradition. We do not take this question lightly because this is a scenario in which there are competing values at play here. And so from a Jewish traditional perspective, and again, if one doesn't care about the Jewish traditional perspective, that's okay too, right? I'm not, a, I'm not trying to force the Jewish traditional perspective on anybody. But from a Jewish traditional perspective, this is a complicated issue. In terms of the contemporary American political ramifications, given that Judaism holds a complicated position here, I have argued, and I've written a series of social media posts about this, that I actually think this is problematic in terms of Jewish religious freedom if Roe v. Wade gets overturned. Meaning if Roe v. Wade gets overturned, right? Roe v. Wade, obviously the idea that there is a federally or constitutionally protected right to abortion, right? If this gets overturned and then it goes to the states and one is in a state, let's say, Texas, for us in California, this obviously will not be as much of an issue. And Texas imposes very strict guidelines of abortion, right? Let's say heartbeat laws or even at conception. There would then be cases where Jewish law would recommend or even mandate an abortion that would then be seen as illegal by the state. So needless to say, this is an issue. And I think that these sort of proverbial Jewish red alert in the back of our head should go off because we've spent a lot of time throughout our history in countries, especially Christian controlled countries, where religious law was used to stymie Jewish practice, right? And I don't want to sound like a doomsday scenario, right? I'm, I'm generally not a Hyperbolic. Oh no! You know, are you know, next thing we know, we're going to be in Handmaid's Tale. But I do think that from a Jewish point of view, right, we can see the I'm trying to think the, the right way to phrase this, right? Under hegemonic governments, whether they be religious fundamentalist hegemonic governments or political hegemonic governments, Judaism has never thrived. Right? There's something about liberalism, something about this idea of freedom, right, be it religious freedom, freedom of speech, all the things that America offers that I would argue has been uniquely good and exceptional for the Jewish experience. And so given that it seems clear that the overturning of Roe v. Wade is based on the premise of wife begins at conception, which is a religious idea, right? I think that, that should give a certain red alert for the wider Jewish community, because in a sense, this is a Christian religious view getting pushed onto the rest of the public. Now, I mentioned Roe v. Wade, and so I wanted to address sort of a more meta issue here, and this will be just another couple minutes, which is if one actually reads the decision, right? There's sort of a Wider debate about how to read the Constitution at play in American society. And this is where I think Jewish wisdom comes in a really interesting way. The two camps, roughly speaking, are originalists or textualists, those that always are trying to get back to the sort of original and simplistic meaning of the Constitution, and what we can call the interpretationists, right? Those who want to interpret the Constitution in increasingly liberal ways. Now, the actual Supreme Court decision, if one goes and reads it, is based on this idea of textualism, is based on a careful read of the Constitution. And when you carefully read the Constitution, well, what do you know? It doesn't seem that there's ever an explicit right to an abortion. Therefore, you overturn Roe v. Wade, right? That, that in a nutshell, is most of the recently leaked Supreme Court decision. Now, one of the interesting things about this idea of textualism versus an interpretive tradition is that the entirety of Jewish tradition in the last 2000 years has been an interpretive tradition. I can't overstate this enough, meaning Judaism as a tradition unequivocally rejects this idea of textualism, meaning we do not believe that it is possible to go back to the original source, to go back to the Torah, to cut out the interpretation, to cut out the oral Torah, to cut out the Mishnah, the Gemara, the medieval thinkers, the contemporary thinkers, and say, well, what does the Torah say about Shabbat? I don't care what the Mishnah and Talmud and tradition and interpretation says about Shabbat. What does the actual Torah say about Shabbat? Well, when you open the Torah, it turns out the Torah doesn't say much about Shabbat, right? It talks about how important of a day this is, and it says, don't light a fire, and it says, don't go and collect the manna, right? And a couple other things, right? Don't collect sticks, right? if we were just, if we were originalists, if we were textualists, Judaism would have died out. I mean, there's no other way to say that. There have been other groups that have arisen in Jewish history, right? The Sadducees, the Karaites, right? Parallel groups that have actually attempted to return Judaism back to a textualist, right? Let's cut out this interpretive tradition. Let's go back to the original text. And those groups basically had zero staying power. The Sadducees were unable Right. The Sadducees is just a little bit of a Jewish historic lesson in the first century, as Judaism was under Roman imperial rule. And the, it was becoming increasingly clear that the Romans were going to come in and destroy Jerusalem and that Judaism had to make a pivot. There were a multiplicity of groups that were in Jerusalem at the time. Right. There were the Pharisees who are believed by scholars to have been sort of proto rabbis that were devising this oral and interpretive tradition, because in their mind, Once Judaism gets spread out, once we get exiled from Israel, we need a robust oral tradition because without interpretation, progress cannot happen. There was another group known as the Sadducees, and the Sadducees were more biblical literalists. And so the Sadducees were unable to conceive of a Judaism that wasn't connected directly to the temple. Because if one reads through the Torah. About 40% of the Torah is talking about laws of the temple, sacrificial laws, purity laws, all of those things, the building of the tabernacle. And so if we didn't have the interpretive tradition, if the rabbis weren't able to say, well, listen, what the Torah literally says is every morning you're supposed to bring a lamb into the temple in Jerusalem, but we're going to interpret that to mean prayer, right? That's what the rabbi said. We would have no such thing as prayer. We would have no such thing as synagogue right? So the entirety of Judaism is based around this idea of interpretation. And so in terms of the way that this affects the wider political debate, I don't expect this to actually convince anybody, because if you're a textualist in terms of the constitution, you're a textualist. But in terms of the Jewish traditional view, right, if we take a bird's eye view of Jewish tradition, it is clear that Jewish tradition rejects the idea that one can go back to the original meaning the original interpretation of a text. And instead, Judaism demands interpretation. In perhaps one of the most famous stories in the Talmud, and this will be the last thing I say, the rabbis are debating about the purity of an oven. It's called Tanor Aknai, the oven of Aknai. And the rabbis are debating. And all of the rabbis, except for Rabbi Eliezer, say, we believe that this rabbi is kosher right? It's a purity and impurity case, but let's go with kosher here, right? The rabbis say, we believe this oven is kosher. And Rabbi Eliezer says, no, this oven is actually not kosher, right? So they get into a good old Talmudic debate. And Rabbi Eliezer is giving them reason after reason, right? Logical reason. And the rabbis keep on rejecting his reasons. And Rabbi Eliezer finally says, okay, if I'm right, let there be, and then he describes a whole series of miracles, right? Let this river flow backwards and the river flowed backwards. And the rabbi said, well, we're not impressed. And then he said, well, if I'm right, let the trees that are around me get uprooted. The trees get uprooted and the rabbi say, you know, we're not impressed, right? We're not deriving law from a miracle is what they say. He tries one more time, right? If I'm correct, let the walls of the Beit Midrash, let the walls of the synagogue, the study house collapse. The walls started to collapse And the other rabbis stopped the walls from collapsing. And they said, okay, Rabbi Eliezer, these tricks are very impressive. But this is not how we derive Jewish law. So Rabbi Eliezer said, okay, if I am right, God should come down and tell you I am right. And in the story in the Talmud, God comes down and says to the rabbis, Rabbi Eliezer is right. So now just to sort of frame this situation in the Talmud. The rabbis are arguing about a law of purity based off of the Torah. God, the author of the Torah, comes down and gives them the final ruling. The rabbis turn to God in the scenario and say, God, lo bashamayim hi. The Torah is no longer in heaven. You wrote the Torah and you gave it to us. And now it is our job to interpret the Torah. We don't care what you say. This is a stunning rejection of the idea of originalism. And there's hundreds of more stories and scenarios in the Talmud that go along the same theme. What the rabbis of the Talmud were essentially saying is they do not care about original intent. They do not care about textualism. They understand that for a community and a tradition to thrive, to prosper, and to progress, one needs to have a heavy dose of interpretation. Now, there's an important conversation to have, we're not going to have it here, of what the limits of interpretation should be, because I think it is obviously possible to interpret too liberally. A lot of my qualms with, I think, the contemporary American liberal Jewish community is there's been some Jewish ideas that have been interpreted too liberally. But in terms of the fundamental idea of textualism or authorial intent, Judaism would say, if the rabbis of the Talmud were here right now reading this Roe v. Wade leaked decision, they would say, we do not care what the founders and the writers of the Constitution had to say. They gave us the text. It's our job now to interpret it. The Talmudic story ends with the rabbis discovering Elijah the prophet in a marketplace, as rabbis in the Talmud often did, and they asked Elijah, when this case happened, right, when the rabbis unequivocally rejected God's input, what was your reaction? And Elijah said, God said, my children have defeated me. My children have defeated me. But in a loving way, meaning God was happy that the rabbis and that subsequent Jewish communities were mature, wise, and taking initiative enough to understand that to have a robust Community, one needs to engage interpretation and cannot be bound by the dead words of an old text, but need to be kept alive by the robust spirit of conversation and interpretation. Thank you for listening, and we'll hopefully get back to some normally scheduled interview podcasts later. But again, I thought that these series of ideas, if nothing else, will give you food for thought about what is currently the most divisive issue in American politics.